Exercises. My name is Rachel Amaday. I am so pleased to be here with you all today with another in my series on hell. And this one, I'm, honestly, the more research I do, the more questions I have. So I am actually thinking this is one that I might attempt to find somebody to interview about because this is a complex topic with a lot going on, a lot of Bible verses, a lot of words, a lot of research on those words that I've been doing lately. Yet, I'm having a hard time finding uh, a quality uh, contact, a quality person to have on, just because I think this is a topic not a lot of people really discuss for the reasons that I've been saying. There's some vagueness that we need to insert into our understanding of the afterlife. Um, We especially can insert vagueness, you know, at the eighth day. We have no idea what life looks like after the thousand-year reign of Christ, We don't know. After the great white throne judgment, the Bible is not clear with us on what eternity looks like for those who love the Lord. And so we know it's going to be wonderful. We know it's going to be incredible. What more do we know about that? Not a lot. So there's vagueness about that. There's also vagueness about the location of those who are not part of the church, who are not part of the body of Christ. What happens then? And we are going to get to um, the sheep and the goats judgment uh, at the end of this podcast. I do want to talk about that today because it goes into a little bit of this discussion on hell and what does hell mean and what is scripture actually saying? Now, last time we discussed a couple of words. We discussed the word sheol specifically. Um, this is the word that used is used most in the Old Testament to discuss a location for souls after you, your body has passed. And what is there, actually? What does that mean? So if you didn't catch that one, you might want to go back and take a listen Today to start, yeah, we're going to keep in our really academic thing we're doing right now, which is defining terms, okay? We are looking at right now mostly the Old Testament. What are the terms that are sometimes translated as hell, or sometimes we're told that they're descriptive of hell in the Old Testament? And so we are on to three words today, takti, amek, and hava. And if you haven't listened to my past podcasts on this, you might be wondering, why are you doing this? Why are you entering into this space? This is really controversial and a lot of people are going to be pissed. Well, I'm entering into this space because I have some concerns about our testimony of who our God is. When we go out and we tell people God is going to condemn them to hellfire, uh, which is kind of, listen, when you say God condemns someone to hell, some of our issues, so, some of the problems we have is the current cultural definition of hell is a location where Satan runs the place and you are tortured forever and ever by some sort of being or element um, for eternity. Okay, so this is the concept that people have of hell. That particular aspect, that particular concept of a location for all souls that are not saved and, and notice I'm using the term all souls <laughs> that are not saved, we condemn them to hell. But I'm not sure that the Bible condemns them, to, condemns them to that specific location that we have culturally defined. In fact, when we looked at the history of our ideas around hell, we found out that 
A lot of them come from literature, not from scripture at all, from literature like Dante's Inferno and and just cultural applications. You know, many denominations have used this as a weapon against people to make them terrified of what happens to them in the afterlife and force them into all sorts of penances and payments and behaviors. And, you know, listen, if, if you are scaring people into good behavior, I don't want to necessarily say that's the worst thing in the world, but it's not exactly the relationship that God defines in scripture when he says, you know, my beloved to his church, to his bride. And he, he you know, in um, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, you have this love story that is definitely prophetic about Christ and the church. And so I'm not sure we want people to come to the Lord out of fear. I mean, if that's the only way, okay. But what we really want to draw them to is the love of God. And so we have some cultural uh, definitional, we've got terminology issues. And when we go out and we'd say that, you know, every person who isn't saved is going straight to hell, even all the people who never heard the name of Jesus and even all, you know, this, blah, blah, blah. We don't give God any um, subtlety, nor do we give him really any justice. And I think because of the terminology as well, we might be maligning God and making him into kind of a torture chamber advocate. And um, so we need to go in and see what the Bible actually says. Now, some of you might already be tense. Uh, you might be thinking, Rachel doesn't believe there's eternal punishment. She doesn't believe there's something uh, called the lake of fire, blah, blah, blah. No, I, I do. The scripture is very clear that the lake of fire exists. Who does it exist for exactly? is the question. Um, I believe that there's eternal separation and destruction that the Bible talks about, but what does that mean? And what do these verses that, you know, our English translation has the word hell, what do those things mean exactly? And so I want to get into this because I want us to be good representatives of God's character and his kingdom so that we can have better, deeper, more full conversations about who our God is, especially to those who are unbelieving. So we're going to start, uh, we're doing kind of an academic approach. We're looking at the words used sometimes as hell or used to describe what we think is describing hell in scripture, but we're going to look at what they actually say, where some of where they're located, what they actually mean. The three words we're going to cover today are takti, emek, and hava. I don't know if I'm saying those all perfectly. You will have to forgive me for my non, uh, you know, Hebraic understanding of how to pronounce these words. But so we're going to start with takti. And um, this is a word that qualifies Sheol oftentimes or is used as a concept of the afterlife or hell in the Old Testament. This appears 19 times in the Old Testament, and Strong's Dictionary defines it as meaning lower or lowest. So as you can see, it's kind of uh, an adjective in some ways. Here are a few examples. It appears for the first time in Genesis 6, 16. That verse says this, A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower second and third stories shalt thou make it. So we've got lower there. That is the word takti. It appears in Exodus 19, describing that the people were waiting at the nether part of the mountain is what the verse says. That nether is the word takti. They were waiting at the lower part of the mountain for Moses. Um, most references are to a lower area or part of something, and that, yes, that can have layers of meaning, right? That can have literal meaning, but also it can have 
other layers of meaning that point us to nether regions or death or the ground or Sheol, right? Relating to sin, darkness. So we can have that inference there in the verse, but we have to make sure we're being careful. What does the verse context actually say? What is it talking about? We really get into this word usage when we get into the Psalms. So we look at Psalm 63, verse 9. It says, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. That's the takti of the earth. Now that's death. Where do you go when you die? Into the depths of the earth. And we remember we talked about Sheol. Sheol is always, it it seems like always described as a lower location, somewhere, it feels like somewhere in the earth, right? That's kind of what seems to be being described. Psalms 139.15 also uses Takti saying this, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Depths there is that word. Now this is David describing how he was made. Is he saying he was made in, in hell? I don't think so. So this word obviously doesn't always describe hell. It's not always describing a negative location. Uh, Now, some believe Takti is relating to the center of the earth where hell apparently exists. But again, then what is going on in our Psalms verse we just read? What's going on here with this word, right? In Lamentations 3.55, Takti is used here. It says, I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Well, dungeon, low, low and dungeon certainly do seem like a bad place. But is that hell or is that some state of being? Is that a, a place of difficulty and trial for us? Ezekiel 31 has references to both Sheol, the pit, and to Takti, suggesting a lower area, a place where God sent Egypt as a punishment. The place is also a place described where the uncircumcised go. So this is where those separated from God dwell in Ezekiel 31. So in the word Takti, we get a locational aspect, but not actually a lot more. Okay, so I'm trying to not put ideas out there that aren't there. When I look at the different uses of this word, to me, it just literally means lower. I know that there are probably some deeper dives on this word that are going to tell us more about it. Um, and, and when we get into the word amek here, it has some of the same definitions as takti from my research. It means deep, depth, unfathomable. It also seems to be an adjective describing sheol or the location of the dead. It can also mean strange. It can mean strange or unintelligible. And um, we see this word used, uh, let me find this verse here. Uh, We see this in a prophecy that Isaiah gives us, that the Israel will encounter a people of unintelligible speech. Yes, it is seemingly kind of a negative connotation, um, but Emek uh, is used uh, less times in the Old Testament, but it has some of the same kind of, it, it's an adjective, it's descriptive, um, again, strange or deep or unknowable, kind of a locational descriptor there. Now let's move to the word hava. Strong's definition says this, calamity, iniquity, mischief, mischievous thing, naughtiness, naughty or perverse thing from hava in the sense of eagerly coveting and rushing upon by implication of falling. 
desire, also ruin. So iniquity, um, noisome substance, very wickedness. That's what all is kind of entailed in that use of word. Now, there does seem to be more in that word hava that would relate to destruction, right? Or something related to hell because there's sin involved. Um, It looks like this term is used 15 times in the Old Testament, primarily in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and one reference in Micah. Some of these uses point quite a bit to the work of the tongue being destructive or calamity happening in life, that sort of thing. Um, So we have, again, a word that's a specific word with a specific meaning, but that often when we read it gets translated into kind of a hell connotation or seems to be descriptive of some type of destruction happening that we normally would call hell, but might be something more specific than that and different than that. Now, I wanted to just cover three words. Last week, we did a lot of this kind of academic look. I want to I approach you with an idea here um, and, and one more kind of, uh, I guess, definition that is not about hell necessarily, but I want to talk about soul and how is soul defined in scripture. Because if we don't understand soul, then we are also possibly going to misinterpret what the Bible actually says about this. And there are giant assumptions about what the Bible says around the soul, okay? Especially concerning, if you look at a verse like Ezekiel 18.4, which states, the soul who sinneth shall die. Now we know the body dies, right? We know your body dies. But what about the soul? What is a a death to the soul? We've always assumed death for the soul just meant hell. But that's not... Hell is eternal torture. If your body is alive and you're being tortured, your body hasn't died yet, right? Think about that. So if you're still alive in your body, even if you're being tortured, your your body hasn't died. You're not gone. When your body, when your soul leaves your body, your body disintegrates and it really is gone. Death is the destruction of the body. Your body goes, right? And you turn back into dust, according to scripture. Well, and according to science, by the way, um, if the soul can die, according to Ezekiel 18.4, what does that mean? Does that mean your soul is not eternal? Is your soul eternal? Is every soul eternal? Those who say yes, quote these sorts of verses, and I'm going to read them to you because I want you to hear them, and I want you to listen to what they say. In Psalm 23, 6, David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever means forever, right? In Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the preacher mentions two things that happen at death. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. In 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Paul says that believers who have died will be with Christ at the rapture of the church, right? It says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. All these passages do indicate that your soul is immortal. However, this qualifier here in all of these passages is talking about believers, right? In Revelation 6-9, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are Christian martyrs, obviously. They're in heaven. They're in eternity. But again, 
they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had been maintained. Okay. So in Luke 23, 43, Jesus promises one of the thieves who's dying beside him. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now remember paradise here is not heaven. That's not what it it means. Actually, paradise is the waiting place according to the Greek there. So, but obviously Yeshua is telling this man who believed in him on the cross, that he's going to be there, you know, with him in an afterlife. Daniel 12, two to three says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What does that word contempt mean? I don't know. We'd have to go in and take a look, right? Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Again, we have resurrection discussed here for both the righteous and the unrighteous, the saved and the unsaved. Um, But what we have is everlasting life given to those who are with the Lord. And what happens to those who are not? It's not completely clear here. So we're going to now go to Matthew 25 because this is something, this is where um, believers reference Jesus making claims about hell for all of those who do not love him. And um, there is, there is hell discussed here. So let's see what it actually says. Now, before we get into the fullness of Matthew 25, let me just say this. Matthew 25 has three parables and they seem to have um, increasing levels of punishment given the people in them in each parable. Okay. So I see three different types or locations for three different groups of people. The first parable is the parable of the 10 virgins. I encourage you to go read this. There are five who have enough oil for when the bridegroom comes and they are the ones who get to go into the wedding feast. The others are left out in the cold. They don't get to go to the feast, but that does not mean that they are in hell. Okay. It doesn't say that. The parable says they're left out of the wedding feast. They're outside in this dark area. You know, this, it's not necessarily the nicest place. It's not what they want to be. But remember, if you understand, and we could do a study on this, if you understand the Galilean wedding, you know that the bridegroom comes to get his bride in the middle of the night. And so when they go into their wedding and their wedding feast, it's night. And they go into the brightness of the wedding feast and everyone else is left out in the cold, okay? So there is a location for this, um, the waiting bride who's not completely ready that isn't necessarily, it doesn't say it's hell, but it is not the wedding feast, okay? That's the first parable. The second parable is one of talents. And there is a wicked servant who does not invest in the gifts that God has given, does not invest the talents, doesn't do well with what he's been given. And that person um, goes into, I guess, what you could kind of consider it hell, but is is cast out, you know, into utter darkness and um, and and is in a particular location. Now, we get to a third parable, and this is called the sheep and the goats parable. This is uh, clearly one of the judgments that happens. We're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about what judgment is this, who is this for, and what does this mean, Okay. And I'm not, listen, I want to preface this. 
I don't have all the answers. In fact, as I've said many times, the more I study this, the more questions I have. I really need to get into more of the language. I need some other people around me, which I'm going to be looking for. But I do have questions because I don't think the Bible has made it as cut and dry as the church has made it. Okay, let's see about this eternal punishment that comes up in the third parable in Matthew 25. Let's read it, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Remember that verse. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, if you believe that this is talking about the judgment of individual souls, you have a lot of, a lot of doctrinal problems to deal with, with this passage. Let's start with the first one that's the most obvious to me just by reading it. Isn't this judgment based on works? There is no discussion in any of this about faith. It is 100% works-based. You either fed the poor, you either fed, fed the least of these, you either took care of them or you didn't. And if you didn't, you go to eternal punishment, right? According to Yeshua. So if this is about the individual spiritual judgment, then we have a works-based salvation going on here, don't we? What's interesting is both groups of people believe that this is the Lord. So that that kind of tells you something about the timing maybe of this. And I'm going to tell you, um, let's talk about another issue. In the Greek text, there is no reference to people which takes all the individual judgment out of this. Now, in our English, we do have the word people come up. And let me find it for you here. Um, He will separate the people one from another. The Greek text doesn't say that. It doesn't say the people. What it says is all the nations will be gathered before him, and he separates the sheep from the goats. We've got possibly national judgments taking place here. Okay. When is this judgment happening? 
Well, here's my theory. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. I believe this is his when he returns um, and he is rescuing his people from the complete destruction of the earth, right? This is, you know, after the mark of the beast and all those things are taking place, then Yeshua returns. And he gets to sit on the throne on the earth because he gets to reign for a thousand years. So I believe this is before the great white throne judgment. This is a separate judgment. And it's possible, given the text, it's a national judgment. But let's go to that verse I told you to pay attention to. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Who are those people? We don't have just sheep and goats here. We have brothers and sisters of Yeshua, according to this parable. Who are they? Aren't we called brothers and sisters, basically? Aren't we called the body of Christ if we are in him? What's going on here? What is this parable actually talking about? So uh, a theory that I want to throw out there is this is a national judgment. This is talking about nations that helped the brothers and sisters in Christ during the final days, okay? We have this judgment taking place over the people who have made it through the great tribulation, right? So this is about judging the groups that were helping God's people and those that were not. Now, I don't know if that's the case exactly. I need to dig even more into this. But from just a plain reading of the text, it seems like we have those who are in the Lord who suffer, right? They're going to suffer greatly through the tribulation. And you possibly have groups of people who help them, right? You have nations that are helpful and you have nations that are not. Um, and and certainly this is going to affect individuals. So how does that come into play? But I just wanted to point out to you, this is not such a cut and dry parable. When you look at the groups of people that are here, and then when you think about what the Bible tells us, salvation is not by works. It is through faith. You have to have faith in the Lord. So we can't be looking at a works-based salvation in this parable. That does not make sense. What we're looking at here is a particular type of judgment that happens, and it is perhaps a judgment on the non-believers that existed through the tribulation. What do you think of that? Listen, you have your own opinions. I know you do. I want you to go read this parable for yourself. But at the very least, have I caused you to pause? Have I caused you to pause? Because we do know that there is a particular group of people at the Great White Throne Judgment. There is a group of people that gets thrown into the lake of fire. It is not necessarily everyone who hasn't believed in the Lord. It is those who have been particularly rebellious against him at the very end who join Satan and his armies. We see that those people absolutely are thrown into the lake of fire. And um, I can't say that we see that for every other human that doesn't believe in God in scripture. I'm having a hard time finding that. I'm also, again, I'm having a hard time finding that souls are all eternal. I know that the souls of those who have eternal life are eternal, right? That's what eternal life kind of is, isn't it? (laughs) But for the souls of those who do not know the Lord, are they eternal? 
Do they last forever? Do all of them go to the lake of fire? Do all of them go to hell? And if so, what is hell? And right, we've been discussing the words around that, at least in the Old Testament, and it's a little bit vague. It's not exactly clear that hell is fire and brimstone. It is clear that it is a place for the dead. But then what happens to them? Because remember, at the great white throne judgment, all the souls are gathered from the earth, from the oceans and the land, right? They're all gathered and they're each individually judged at the great white throne judgment. What happens after that? We're going to get into this. We're going to keep studying. We're going to keep looking because this is not as cut and dry as I was always taught. Now, listen, the cut and dry, it really works for that Sunday sermon, right? That quick 20 minutes that you got on Sunday to talk to people or just the, just that, hey, I just want to tell you what salvation is. It really works, but it might not be 100% accurate. And when we're talking about the character of the Lord and his ability to provide justice and judgment, we've got to be careful. I also want to bring up a concept to you that... Um, I've been learning about recently, and it is the word judgment itself. Judgment has two meanings in scripture, yet we only ever get the word judge and judgment. We only ever get the one meaning. And in our kind of vernacular, judgment means the, the judge has passed a sentence. You have been sentenced. But sometimes in scripture, that word judgment is actually referring to a term that means uh, working out. It's w being worked out. It's being discussed. It's being decided upon. It's not exactly the sentencing. And so when you come across that word judgment in some of these verses, you must also be careful to know which type of judgment is it talking about? Is it talking about sentencing, like you are sentenced to hell? Or is it talking about a discussion, a time frame, a period of time when these things are being hammered out and worked out and decided upon based on people's actions, people's decisions, right? Based upon the uh, discussions going on in heaven, discussions going on with God. And so there are multiple different ideas, just like we've been looking at. There's multiple different words for hell and the descriptions around hell. There's also different words for judgment that are used in the Bible. And we have to be careful that we're not always assigning a sentencing meaning to judgment when we see that. Sometimes judgment in scripture takes a long time. It's not a one and done. It's uh, God looking at the situation and deciding as things go along what's going to happen with people. And so that's a lot. That's a lot of information just for you today. I would like for you to go and read Matthew 25 and see if you come to some of the same conclusions that I have upon looking at those three different parables in a row. It seems like there's three different outcomes for those groups of people. And also, especially the last parable there, what is he saying? What's he saying? We need to do more work, more study, right? And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and help us to interpret these things so that we have an accurate description of who our God is and of his character when we go out to the world and talk about him. All right, that is enough for this week's study of hell. I am really hoping I can come back to y'all with some fun guests in the coming weeks. I'm working on just getting some people slotted in their schedules, working them out with mine. Um, we're going to have some fascinating topics of conversation. In the meantime, please reach out with any prayer requests, any needs, or any thoughts. I would love to hear what you think. All right, till next time. <laughs>